this is Penny Johnson, and you're listening to From Stage to Page, an audiobook podcast devoted to the forgotten stories and memoirs of female performing artists from the late 19th and early 20th centuries. In this episode, we continue with Leszczycki as I Knew Him, written by Ethel Newcomb and published in 1921 by D. Appleton and Company. Chapter 9 When foreigners or strangers came to Ischel and looked about for lodgings, the familiar greeting was, Probably you have come to study with the Herr Professor? Those who remained in Ischel through the summer were, for the most part, attracted there by Leszczycki. In this little town, picturesquely placed among the mountains of the Salzkammergut, the emperor had one of his summer palaces. Brahms was also a summer resident, but was not friendly to strangers or interested in them. He was reported to be irritable and impatient of many small things. My dog Solo would have annoyed him terribly, Leszczycki once remarked, but he added quickly, He loved the mountains, though, and preferred these near ones to the lofty remote peaks of Switzerland, a preference one would hardly have expected in Brahms. Many distinguished people were to be seen on the esplanade at Ischel. Johann Strauss was often seen there. Eduard Schutt liked to come over from Marin. Rosenthal and Fanny Bloomfield Zeisler came often to Ischel. As for Leszczycki, life in this beautiful spot was thoroughly agreeable. Ischel leads to cheerful thoughts, he said. He dearly loved Ischel and all its surroundings. The place put him at once in a happy mood. During the six weeks of the rainy season of the Salzkammergut, he was never unhappy indoors or taking long walks carrying his umbrella. He was only moody when other people complained of the bad weather. He owned a small villa there, charmingly situated, with a beautiful view in all directions, and on one side was a meadow leading into the woods. He often remarked that he was blessed in having many things at Ischel, the meadows, the mountains, the walks through the woods, and the seclusion of his own garden. There was a profusion of flowers everywhere, and in the distance rushing waters were to be seen and heard. This tiny place was complete in every detail, even to the friendly little bench outside the hedge, which he considered indispensable to hospitality. "'Tired peasants coming up the hill are glad of that bench,' he used to say. "'Brahms has sat there many a time, and who knows but that the emperor with all his troubles may have rested there some time. He is a tired man, too.' The people of Ischel knew Leszczycki as a kind, affable man, who was interested in them and ready to listen to anything they wanted to tell him of their affairs or troubles.' The peasants all knew him, and were proud to say that he had spoken to them as he passed by. He addressed them with a kind of fatherly solicitude that was charming to see. "'It is a good thing to have their approval,' he said. 
They know as well as diplomats whether you mean what you are saying or not. One lady there, with little tact or pliability in conversation, who often saw Leshetitsky talking with various people, especially the peasants, took her notebook finally and tried to classify his remarks and record his expressions. She soon gave this up in despair, however, remarking that at first she had thought the charm lay in his words, but was finally convinced that it must be in his manner which acted like magic upon people of all kinds. Now she knew that it was hopeless to try to imitate him. He must be a magician, she concluded. She related many stories that showed the master in a somewhat sentimental light. Indeed, on occasions he could be sentimental and tender, as well as intensely practical. One summer, when he arrived in Ischel, so the story goes, Crowds of children, friends, and citizens met him at the station. This was shortly after he had been given, officially, the freedom of the town. The townspeople followed him in procession to the hillside field beyond the villa where refreshments had been prepared. Children with arms full of flowers followed the professor everywhere, clinging to his arms and coattails as he greeted each one separately by name. All at once he stopped and asked, "'Where is little Tilly?' On learning that Tilly, a small peasant girl, had been obliged to stay at home because she had no dress to wear for this occasion, Leshetitsky slipped away unnoticed, went quickly to Tilly's house, and took her to a shop nearby. The woman behind the counter fastened on a new dress. Leshetitsky washed the child's face and shortly after he and a very happy little girl appeared hand in hand at the welcome party. During the time that the palace was occupied, Ischel became a gay and festive summer resort, especially for Austrians. The Empress spent a great deal of time there, as did also friends of the court, notably Madame Schrat, the famous actress who had a house on one of the beautiful roads a mile or two out of the town. The emperor, it was said, liked to play billiards every evening at her house, where the best players refrained, however, from winning a game from his imperial majesty. The emperor walked generally at nine in the morning and at five in the afternoon. Often his steps led past the peasant cottage where we were living, and in response to our low curtsy he saluted us with great ceremony and with an enchanting smile which suddenly transformed his habitually sad countenance. He walked through the fields and forests alone, or with a companion, safeguarded, however, by detectives who stationed themselves at intervals behind the doors of cottages along the way. The summer when the Empress was assassinated she had just left Ischel for Geneva. The emperor had recently completed for her a beautiful road around and over one of the mountains back of the palace, where she could stroll alone and unobserved. It was possible, by introduction to an official, to obtain the key that unlocked the series of gates along this road and to walk there after the empress had left. One evening, 
as we had just descended this mountain and had come into the palace gardens. We observed signs of the greatest agitation. In a few moments the bells of Ischel began to toll. A huge voice through a megaphone called the people together who gathered from the neighboring hills to hear that their empress had been assassinated. Until far into night they collected in the squares, falling on their knees, weeping and praying. It was a touching and pitiful sight to see these kind-hearted, devoted peasants at that terrible time. Indeed, it was many a day before the people of this quiet little place regained their normal composure. Some of them were strangely terror-stricken. Others became unbalanced and wild. One good peasant, who had been gardener at the palace for a long time, was so profoundly affected by the tragic news that he became almost insane. The empress had always spoken kindly to him, he said, and to think that he had failed her when bad people rose to do her harm. He threatened to shoulder a gun and find the assassin, but finally his horror subsided into honest tears. His wife went on a pilgrimage to a shrine thirty miles distant, walking all the way to offer thanks for the preservation of her husband's mind. During the following summer, my sister and I lived in a little cottage at the top of a hill called the Doppelblick. The good peasant woman with whom we lived used to tell how on many a morning the empress had come across the hill through the field with her magnificent braids of hair down her back, dressed in a simple white dress, to drink a glass of milk at her cottage. This happened generally very early in the morning, she said. She would point with pride to the bench where the empress had sat. Who could have wanted to kill that poor lady? Our empress, she said, crossing herself. She was all kindness, and she had so many troubles, too. She lost her only son, and used to tell me how thankful I should be that I had all my children alive and well. The peasants of Ischel were for the most part good-hearted and pleasure-loving. They seemed to enjoy life immensely, and were very kind to their large families of children. One of the happiest and gayest had thirteen, worked in the fields until sundown, and danced a good part of the night with much drinking of beer. On great occasions she ate meat, but with good beer she considered that she had enough for everyday life. She was very sorry for ladies. Ladies were generally not healthy, she understood. It was difficult for them to keep well, she was sure, and she had often heard that ladies did not love their children. Over in America, across the Danube, they threw them into the rivers, she had heard. She knew that if she went very far away from Ischel, they would laugh at her for having so many children, so she was satisfied and preferred to stay at home. Leschetitsky was always interested in the attitude of foreigners toward his class, and was especially amused by stories illustrating any interest these people took in things outside their own work. There were those who could vouch for the fact that one good peasant farmer of a town in southern Austria, despite his ignorance of all other reading, knew the Bible and Shakespeare by heart, and once he had been heard to recite an entire scene from Hamlet. Another peasant owned a good collection of oil paintings, 
and argued with the owner of the estate about perspective. It amused and interested Leschetizky to hear this peasant speak of his pictures. In Austria, it was not at all unusual to hear ladies tell of their servants hurrying to finish their work in order to get a few free hours at a picture gallery. For many years, Leschetizky had spent his summers here in sympathetic Ischel. As soon as he arrived and was rested from the journey, and had played the piano a little, his first pleasure was to walk over the familiar roads that gave him so much to see and think about, and, as he expressed it, to ponder whether he had anything new and interesting or worthy about himself to bring to them, his old friends. He liked to saunter on his walks, and would ask any one about to go with him. "'Are you the kind of person that will not saunter or stop occasionally?' "'I hope not, for perhaps then you might not enjoy my kind of walk.' He was especially fond of the road over the hill, called the Sophian's Doppelblick, from which there was a good view of the snow-capped mountains and deep valleys. It led also to a remote coffee-house where one could order, besides the best coffee, a delicious little supper. He liked to stop in the deep woods on the way and tell mysterious stories. One of his favorites was an experience in Finland when he was on a long, solitary journey. This story his sister-in-law, the Countess Potoska, has charmingly told in her book about him. On one occasion, four of us were with him in these woods, Eduard Schutt, his great friend and pupil, Miss Jane Olmsted, a favorite pupil, my sister and I. We were seated on the ground under the great trees when suddenly, on the road below, we saw the emperor passing with his friend Madame Schrat. Leschetizky was on his feet in an instant. Get up! Get up, my children, he said. There is a piece of Europe walking by. Further along was a little stone erected to mark the spot where the emperor's son had shot his first deer. Leschetizky used to like to stop here to indulge in reminiscences. He had had many conversations with the crown prince, whom he admired exceedingly. He spoke enthusiastically of his great mind, his sportsmanship, and his attainments in literature and art. With all his activities, Leschetizky never gave the impression of restlessness. He loved his home and the quiet of his own garden, where he would sit for hours. It was incomprehensible to him that people should find no comfort in their own surroundings. Oh, he would exclaim, you people who make hotels of your houses, a place to sleep and dress in, and then leave. You are the people who have only acquaintances. You have no time for friendships. The longer one knew Leschetizky, the more one grew to admire his unerring judgment in estimating character. He advocated the most searching analysis of people in general. He thought one should study the art of judging people and never ignore anyone. He had remarkable patience with some apparently undesirable people, and admitted that he had himself learned through making many mistakes of hasty judgment to take pains to discover once for all the possible good qualities of others 
for to overlook these was to place oneself at a great disadvantage. One should learn to be finely discriminating with people and not pass them over. He received a great many people in Ischl, whether of the artistic world or not, many strangers and distinguished foreigners who passed through the Tyrol and Salzkammergut made a point of paying a visit to Leschetizky, who had a great reputation for illuminating conversation. He took much interest in foreign politics and was keen to talk with foreigners about their countries, speaking to them generally in their own language. In recounting the amusing beginning of one of his great friendships, he said, when I see my dear friend Professor Neusser sitting here in my garden, I say to myself every time, What if I had missed knowing him? For I nearly did miss it through my own stupidity. In his youth, he used to meet daily in the Kernschnerkstrasse, a man about his own age, and every time they met, a feeling of intense antagonism swept over him. It was apparent that the feeling was mutual. In the then narrow street they often had to pass so closely that their elbows touched. Each time Leschetizky ground his teeth in rage and declared that if their elbows ever touched again he would do something violent. He would even have welcomed an occasion for a duel, he said, so intense was his aversion for this haughty-looking stranger. Some time later they met at the home of a friend, and this antipathy turned instantly to mutual admiration. On hearing the man speak, Leschetizky recognized his great ability and warmth of personality and set about to make the best impression upon him. This was the beginning of a lifelong friendship. Professor Neusser was a celebrated Viennese physician and a good musician as well, a thing not uncommon among the Viennese university professors. Through him, Leschetizky said, he learned to love all doctors. They are the best people in the world, he added. He told of another friendship that began very badly, too. Early in the acquaintance there were large gifts of champagne made, which were promptly returned. Excessive friendliness he had also objected to, but he soon discovered great diffidence under these extremes, and out of a chaos of disagreement and misunderstanding that lasted a year or two, he brought to light a real friendship that nothing affected or disturbed. Superficially, one had to win him anew each time, but his real friendships were lasting and profound. He always had time for them, and liked to talk daily, if possible, with the same people. There was a great depth of feeling in his friendships, and he used to say that friendship was the most difficult thing on earth to retain or to be worthy of. Although he could have more time to himself here in Ischl than anywhere else, he never took a real vacation. He disliked the thought of vacation. It was incomprehensible to him that a musician could be without his instrument, even for a day, if one were to be had. And it is certain that if he were in a place where he could not have a piano, he would have sought out somebody who had one on which he could play, or he would have composed, or at least would have spent some of his time in the study of music. He could scarcely keep away from the piano, and was in such intimate relationship with it 
that he sometimes played a chord on entering the room, as if to say good morning, or on leaving, as if to say goodbye. One summer, as my sister and I were packing our boxes to go to the island of Rügen, Leschetizky came to say goodbye to us, and, fearing that we were going to be late for our train, he helped with might and main to finish our packing. As we were leaving, he exclaimed, "'You haven't said goodbye to the piano!' Then, seeing how hurried we were, he went to the piano himself and played us a joyous little goodbye, adding, "'It will be several days before you can hear a piano again.' It always seemed to me that he felt the tone speaking to him, although I never heard him say so. He did say once, however, that it was difficult for him not to associate the expression of a face with certain tones. He had time and Ischel to compose, and wrote many of his pieces there, confining himself mostly to the type of small lyric pieces for the piano. But he generally arrived in Ischel with boxes full of new compositions by others to be looked over. He was decidedly interested in the length of pieces, and considered the matter of the duration of any composition as highly important. Often he made cuts, or repeated or added parts according to his sense of time, and while he was reading new compositions, his watch was usually before him on the piano. He thought that the greatest composers often made the mistake of spinning out the music too long. Shakespeare never made that mistake in his tragedies or comedies, he said, Young people don't make that mistake either. It's the old ones. Young composers could always be sure of his interest and careful attention. Sometimes he offered a prize for the best composition written by his pupils. Once in Vienna, he offered a prize for the best lyric composition written between classes, that is, in a fortnight. Arthur Schnabel wrote three. One of them took the first prize, but Leschetizky gave two first prizes. Osip Gabrilovich won the other. He and Julius Epstein consented to look over about 150 compositions in manuscript, which were written for a prize offered by the famous piano manufacturer Busendorfer. Leschetizky was red-eyed from reading manuscripts all day long and late into the night. He seemed depressed also, and it was altogether a bad summer for pupils. One day, however, he appeared in an entirely new mood. He seemed relieved and fairly inspired. I have found a real composition, he said at last, a real concerto, and I'll wager anything that a young man has written it. Only a young man could have written it, he said. It is too difficult not to show age in musical ideas. When one is aged, he added, rather too solemnly, we thought, considering his youthful spirit. It's the quality of this concerto that counts, and one feels happy and young at some of these phrases. There were about thirty compositions still to be looked over, but this he did cheerfully, delighted at finding a real treasure. When the judges finally awarded the prize to the composer whose concerto had so pleased Leschetizky, his name was found to be Ernst Dafnanyi, then young and almost unknown. We had an amusing discussion one evening in Ischl about one of the motives of a phrase that Leschetizky was composing. 
One of us thought it was too much like one of the phrases in the Chopin fantasy in F minor. The others thought not. Leschetizky finally decided it this way. If you will convince me that you can make the same motion of hand with the same expression of face for both, then I will throw away my phrase as too much like the other. Oh, children, he exclaimed, how happy I am to be here with my family. My pupils are my family. It is hard to be serious in this cheerful place. I should be writing humoresques and fantasies all summer if we did not have serious careers to think about. Go home now and tell me tomorrow that you have learned something new and have not wasted your time. That summer about fifty people came to play for him with the hope of studying after taking the usual course of preparation with an assistant. Invariably he was more interested in their intelligence and temperament than in any amount of finger dexterity or academic knowledge. He listened with greatest attention to every one and tried to discover evidences of talent, but his verdict was usually final and, alas, sometimes merciless. One instinctively felt in playing to him that he considered every possibility, for his greatest ambition seemed to be to develop any good quality to the fullest extent to which it could be developed. Only natural qualities can become great, he said. The acquired ones may become excellent, but never great. If there was any doubt in his own mind about a talent, he was always generous enough to admit that he did not know to what degree it could be developed. A well-known teacher of Atlanta, Georgia, brought several of her pupils to play to him. She asked him if he thought one of them had talent enough to go on. He looked at the girl thoughtfully, then touched his forehead, saying, I should first have to know what's up here. A young man came out to Ischel to confer with Leschetizky for the second or third time about his career. He had played a long time, but showed little intelligence in his study. He was vague and visionary, and thought Leschetizky too severe altogether. The patient master advised him to give up studying music at once if he did not intend to make a success of his career, and when this youth suggested that it would probably kill him to give up the piano, Leschetizky answered, Well, then you had better have done with yourself at once than go on living to be a failure. Of the many who came to play for him at Ischel, he accepted three or four as pupils. To the rest he gave thoughtful and sincere advice, either offering the possibility of a lesson with him after an indefinite period of study with one of his students, or advising them kindly but firmly to seek some other teacher, or suggesting that they give it up altogether. One young man came to get Leschetizky's opinion about his difficulties. He had a most unfortunate hand. His fingernails were grown too far over the fingertips. It was his heart's desire to play the piano, and Leschetizky instinctively felt this. After studying with a great many teachers in Europe, and then coming to Vienna, he went first to an assistant, thinking to better his chances with the master by a little development of his hand. After struggling for a long time to find some position for his hand on the keyboard without success, 
he finally came to Leshetitsky, who agreed to spend any amount of time to help him out of his difficulty. This young man was rather exceptionally accomplished as a musician, but Leshetitsky could find no way to develop his hand, and, regretfully and with tears in his eyes for the poor boy's plight, he told him it was merely a waste of time to think of playing the piano. Another boy's career he felt compelled to decide. This young man had studied to the point of playing the greatest compositions written for the piano with what Leshetitsky called not merely good technique but a beautiful technique. But he thought he saw a great turning point in his career. "'You have puzzled me for some time,' he said. I hear you play and wonder just what is the matter. I notice when you are playing a concerto, the moment you have to follow, your playing takes on character. You associate the music with scenes and words. It is a singer's talent, he said, and it is clear to me that you would be a great follower. Would you not like to be a famous accompanist, he asked, as though the question was settled, for, he added, it is an honor to accompany great singers. However, he took to his art the two or three talented ones, and especially one young man from Frankfurt, Paul Goldschmidt by name. One morning we were surprised to see him hurrying up the hill to the Doppelblick, with that elated expression on his face that he had when anything delighted him. His words about talent, as he sat on the little bench beside the peasant's cottage, I well remember. "'I have this morning found a talent,' he said, his eyes sparkling. "'He is a German, with an interesting but complex personality. He is oversensitive, very young, believes in his own talent, and expects everything of me.' Leshetitsky made himself comfortable on the bench, and talked with deepest seriousness and concern. "'If only he can take the rebuffs that will come,' he said. "'His is not the great forceful talent. "'It is fine and spiritual, and he is spiritual himself. "'But everything he plays he makes beautiful, or he could make beautiful. "'If only he had the power of that other one who was here yesterday. "'You only had to look at him.' to look at his jaw, to know what he would do. Why can't I put them all together? Up there, he said, breaking off suddenly and pointing upward, there is a great orb called talent shining down on us. There are a dozen rays from it. One person catches this ray, another that ray, and once or twice in a century there is someone who catches them all. This new one does not reflect them all, but several. He said, yes, several. I shall not try to do the impossible or try to make out of him something that he is not. There are many who might congratulate themselves if they possessed the qualities that he possesses, and I believe that he has a sufficient number to become a great artist. My energy shall not fail, he said, if only he does not fail in some way. Teaching is art, too he added, and the more talented my pupils are, the more I feel the need of those rays we were just talking about. If he will do his part, I shall do mine. 